Welcome to episode number 63. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everybody. I hope that you guys are all finding ways to spend time with your loved ones over this holiday season, including your Mopars, and I wish you all the best for the new year. I'm actually lining up all sorts of amazing guests and content for 2021, and it is going to be no doubt the best year for talking Mopars yet. But for today's show, we're going to get back to basics with Project Car of the Week listener stories and high-performance parts. But it's also been a while since we've done an installment of High Performance Heritage, and on this installment, we're going to be highlighting the first Hemi-equipped e-body to roll off the assembly line. The car actually started life as a Dodge Challenger, but was transformed into the 1969 Dodge Yellow Jacket show car. And if you're sitting there wondering what the Yellow Jacket is, stay tuned because you're in for a treat. Now, without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned in to the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars, High Performance Heritage. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. This week's Project Car of the Week was posted on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page on Monday, December 14th at 9 a.m. Let's read the ad. 1969 Dodge Dart 340, 7000. This is a 1969 Dodge Dart 344 speed that is now a drag car. It can easily turn back to a street car. There is an 8-point cage and drag seat with 5-point harness. It is mini-tubbed with springs moved into frame. 8 and 3 quarter rear end with 410 gears, strange axles with 3-inch studs. It has the 4-speed in it with Hayes Racing Clutch and Quick Time Bell Housing. The shifter is a Hurst V-Gate with Line Lock Control Button. The heart of this beast is a 1973 40. 10.9-1 compression, dome pistons, 550 solid flat tappet cam, adjustable rockers, 3.8 push rods, YN7510 intake, 340X heads that are ported with new valves, springs, retainers, and locks. Headers are W2-style pipes with 24-inch collectors with EVAC tubes. 7-quart Morisot oil pan and windage tray, electric water pump, and the original numbers radiator. The engine has about 20 minutes of run-in time. Engine was built several years ago, but just fired this past week. Runs excellent. Wheels are centerline knockoffs. I believe American Racing 15 by 10 in rear and 15 by 4 skinnies up front. Still has factory suspension up front with leaf springs out back. Electronics are MSD with Excel Racing Coil with Mopar Electronic Distributor. Nothing fancy, but the combination works well. Original gauges are missing. Dash is there. The body is in good shape. It is an original Texas car. Needs left lower quarter work. Has aftermarket fiberglass hood. Rest of car is factory steel with all the glass. This is an original four-speed car. From the history I got on the car, it's been raced since the late 70s through the early 2000s. This is not a showstopper by no means. It looks good to go racing. If you're motivated, restore it to its former glory. Not a lot of these cars are around, even less are for sale. Will negotiate slightly. Worth more in parts than what I'm asking. Willing to entertain possible Mopar trades. Only Mopar. Call, email, or text. Delivery available. I do not need help selling this vehicle. Title status is missing. All right, folks, this Dart is a pretty cool drag car that comes with a lot of parts. It is actually a real Swinger 340, according to the VIN. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, then you probably know how much I like retired drag cars. I think they make awesome projects, and this Dart is no different from that. My biggest complaints are that someone actually butchered the four-speed tunnel for the setup that this car has, and that the title is missing. The seller seems to be willing to negotiate, which is a good thing, since any money saved in this deal can actually help offset the costs of getting this thing back on the road or the track. I actually really like the fact that it's a real Swinger 340, 
but it doesn't have the original engine, which is, you know, kind of a detriment to the car, but at least it does have a 340 in it that runs and was supposedly rebuilt. So that's always good. And if you buy this thing, I'm sure there's going to be a ton of stuff to fix on it since the last time it saw the track was in the early 2000s, but it might make for a really fun project. So don't count it out just yet. I'd like to see the price around 5,000, but likely you'd end up somewhere in the middle, which isn't that bad for a Swinger 344 speed car, even though it's not technically, you know, what it once was. It's just a drag car, but if you really wanted a Swinger 340, you could turn it back to that. But me, I, I like the nostalgic drag race car. I like that kind of stuff. I love A-body projects, and maybe you don't. I'm okay with A-bodies. You know, I'd love to have a B or an E-body someday, a cool C-body, but for now, A-bodies are what I can afford, barely, <laughs> so that's what I'm going to stick with. If I actually brought this one home, like I always say, I'd assess the car and then tackle the safety issues first and go from there leaving the aesthetics for last. I like the idea of getting this thing streetable again, but ideally use it mostly for a track car. But I think a nostalgic looking ratty Mopar drag car would be really cool. And I think that these, you know, ratty drag Mopars brought out of retirement are going to start getting really popular. So if you're into that style, but don't have your car yet, don't hesitate from gathering some cool vintage drag parts at the swap meets from online groups and forums or eBay. They're a hot commodity now, and I think they're only going to get hotter. So get them while they're hot. But if you have the cash, go pick yourself up a cool nostalgic drag Mopar like this Dart. That was Project Car of the Week, the 1969 Dodge Dart Swinger 340 retired drag car posted on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page on Monday, December 14th at 9 a.m. No Mopar left behind. This week's high-performance part belongs to the 1970 Plymouth Roadrunner featured in the post-apocalyptic zombie vampire movie, Daylight's End. This Roadrunner hero car is a battle bird. From what I know, it started life as a 383 727 car, but was converted at some point to a 440 with a 4-speed. And the reason why I call it a battle bird is because it's outfitted with armor all over the windows and basically looks like something out of Mad Max. Even the paint, which looks to be B3 blue, is weathered into a nice patina, so it just has kick-ass written all over it and if i was going to be in a zombie apocalypse you know i'd probably want this thing too i thought it was pretty cool to see a post-apocalyptic looking mopar in a movie and that's why it ended up being featured in this segment of the show and if you want to see pictures of the car just look up daylight's end roadrunner and you're going to see pictures of it it's a really cool car and there's actually an interview on youtube with the owner of the car and he talks about how he got his car involved in the movie and all the fun stuff associated with that so be sure to go check it out that was this week's high performance part the 1970 plymouth roadrunner featured in daylight's end It's time once again for listener stories. This week we have two of them, both sent by email, with one of them actually being an audio file, which is kind of cool. So let's get into these stories. Our first story comes from Sandre Solheim from Oslo, Norway. Sandre, I hope I'm saying your name right. If not, I apologize. But here is Sandre's story. Hello, writing from Oslo, Norway, Europe. Found your podcast a couple weeks ago and have been listening to a lot of the episodes. Like your work. Don't know if this is relevant or catches your interest, but came across a 1973-83 Roadrunner when I was traveling in the U.S. with my family 10 years ago. Advertised at CarsOnline.com and found it while living temporarily in New York City with wife and daughter, one year old at the time. I knew my wife would not approve of any purchase of such a stupid thing, so instead I told her we would be going to see the Niagara Falls. 
knowing that we on our way back would be taking a little detour to see the countryside and casually stop by Sherman, New York, where the car was advertised. This is not far from Buffalo City, New York by Lake Erie. The people who were conducting the sale on behalf of the owner, an elderly who was living in Sherman, knew we were coming, not my wife, and they all turned out to be very nice people, helpful and honest and helped me with a lot of stuff not to be expected. As you might read into this, I ended up buying the car. I knew at the time little about Mopars and I could only rely on what they told me and what I could see. The people selling the car were Chevy guys, so I guess they could easily rip off this idiot from abroad buying a Mopar, but from what I could see the car seemed pretty original and as advertised. Original, parked since 1981, numbers matching, one repaint in the 70s with some Bondo in and around the wheel wells. The ad had a more extensive description with pics and I found it honest and upfront. Perhaps the price was driving some people off. What do I know? Was I the only one interested or was 15000 too much? I fell in love with the car. It actually started. I got to drive it for a short spin. After a little back and forth, I ended up buying the car for 15000 Yes, I am not a hard bargainer, but the sellers did commit to helping with receiving extra parts from eBay, AMD, Year One, etc., and with the transportation slash the prepping of car for container shipment to Norway. Stupid money, yes. Too much, probably a little bit. This was 2010. But for me, the extra two to 3000 or whatever I had to give, it was worth it. Looking at today's prices for a similar car, I don't think I was a complete idiot. The car is as mentioned, a 383 car, bench seat, 727 with shifter on the column. All numbers match, engine, drivetrain, chassis. It is a B7 Jamaica blue car, a really beautiful color. It is not a Hemi, but it has got some nice extras, like the A36 performance axle package with 355 ratio and the D32 heavy-duty transmission, the D91 Suregrip axle and the N51 maximum engine cooling, and the N65 seven-blade torque fan, the S51 Hemi suspension with sway bar, and S31 front sway bar. It has got drum brakes and power brakes and the light package and the AM radio with rear seat speakers. It still has all the marks and stickers from Lynch Road in the engine bay and underneath the motor hood, plus the sticker about the spare wheel underneath the trunk hood. Perhaps all common stuff, but to me at the time, an insight to the motivation of buying the car, plus the fact that I fell in love with the car having found it. Would be cool if your podcast talked about Mopar option codes and if this is something that makes a difference in today's market, what are the desirable extras? Is it just the engine and drivetrain plus liftoff hood slash air grabber that are important? Is the market turning into further desirable details in this? I haven't listened to every episode yet, so you might have talked about it already. Upon a more thorough inspection in Oslo, I quickly realized that the quarter panels and the trunk pan were rusted out, so I needed to change those. Also, someone had welded on a piece of metal underneath the back of the cars and an extra support for the rear bumper, so I assume the car has been involved in an accident hit from behind. It is not the correct date on the rear bumper, which leads me to this assumption. I found two build sheets in the car, underneath the back and the front seat. Plus, I got the original New York registration certificate. I had and still have no space for machinery or to do a lot of work myself, but I have got help from my friends at a professional workshop not far from Oslo, magnusmotor.no. AMD supplied new metal parts, and a very skillful friend of mine did the bodywork, new quarter panels and trunk. As far as the drivetrain goes, only the cam and lifters have been changed, purple line from Mancini Racing, and a thorough taking apart, putting back together, replacing obvious broken and worn parts in the engine and drivetrain, gaskets, hoses, etc. All of this work has been done by MagnusMotor.no. In English, this would be Magnus Engine Incorporated. Magnus is a first name. They have really done a great job, and I would recommend them. The market in Norway for old Mopars is not huge. I guess I will end up putting at least 25000 plus the sales price of 15000 into this car. In 2010, the dollar versus Norwegian currency was weak, but still. Yes, that is a lot of money, some of it due to paying taxes on importing the car to Norway, but still. Stupid money? Yes, I know. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. 
I will never ever probably sell the car. My kids can sell it if they find the right buyer. In five to 10 years, they will recoup my expenses. Or will they? What are your thoughts on the market? Still rising? What cars and combos would one expect to be safe investments? Having had it for such a long time, just sitting there has skyrocketed the value of the car, although I am the only one recognizing that fact. My history with the car is not worth a dime, laden with personal nostalgia. I received a car at the Port of Oslo in 2011, and it will finally hit the streets of Oslo as soon as the snow and bad weather is off the streets springtime 2021. That will be a good day. Besides the questions about where the market is going, it would be cool to hear your opinion on the car and what to do with it. I am looking to having it repainted, but only on the outside, keeping everything else as original as possible. What to do with a semi-desirable Mopar? Or does some of the extra options build sheet make it more desirable? Your thoughts? Best regards, Sandre B. Solheim, Oslo, Norway. Hey, Sandre, thanks for sending in your story. Let's get to your questions. So, you were asking if $15,000 was too much to pay for the Roadrunner. My opinion is no. I actually recently was looking at a 1970 Roadrunner project car. It was orange, four-speed car, but it was a complete project, and it's $15,000. And when you looked at yours, you know, it was running and driving, so that's good. You know, it was back, what, 10 years ago in 2010? That's still not bad money. I don't think you've lost a dime on it. In fact, I think you gained money. It's B7 Blue. That's a pretty desirable color, if you ask me. I think it's kind of rare, but... I mean, rare, you know, I hate to throw that word around too, but, you know, I would say desirable, definitely desirable color because it's something that you don't see every day. You know, I don't think it was stupid money. You know, even in 2010, $15,000, you know, not bad. And I think you're absolutely right. Looking at prices today for other roadrunners, you know, same year, same, you know, basically the same cars, you know, it's hard to find running and driving project cars for that kind of price. And it sounds to me like you got a pretty, pretty decent car, you know, so what it was hit in the rear. Most of these cars, you know, have had some sort of damage one way or another, you know what I mean? So it's not uncommon when you get a 50 year old car, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you're going to, you're going to have some issues, but I, I don't think 15,000 was a bad deal. I would have bought it for 15,000 if I had the money. Um, as far as talking about option codes on my podcast here, uh, the one issue I have, and I've, I've thought about it, how can I talk about fender tag codes and VIN number stuff and still keep people entertained? You know, because it's kind of a visual thing. So I was actually thinking about going forward with something on YouTube for that kind of thing. Um, so I'm, I'm exploring some options. I don't know how much people want to actually listen to fender tag code type stuff. You know what I mean? But I'll figure it out. We'll figure out a fun way to incorporate that kind of stuff into the show, whether it be on the podcast or most likely video. So that's one, you know, area of entertainment that I've been looking into to further expand, you know, the content that I offer you guys, my loyal Talking Mopars listeners. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, you know, you asked what the desirable options are for these cars. And of course, you know, shaker hoods, sure grip rear ends. I mean, Hemi's, any big block car, you know, performance model, any performance model is pretty much desirable. You know what I mean? But even you look at 318 Challengers and people just want the bodies. You know, those are great cars to do resto mods or to do tribute cars. So even the lower end models the non-RTs and things like that, those cars are still making 
pretty good numbers, you know, when they sell. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, if I was, it depends on what you mean by desirable, you know what I mean? Because desirable can mean many different things to many different people. The most desirable, obviously, are Hemi cars, six-pack cars, or six-barrel, depending on if you're Dodge or Plymouth. Um, you know, air grabbers, the N96 option is always good, you know, whether it be an air grabber or a shaker. Um, four speeds, you know, if you got a pistol grip, good. <laughs> you know, that's desirable. Rally gauge is desirable. I mean, the power sunroof, if you got a factory power sunroof, that is desirable, you know, so gator grain top that can be desirable so the list goes on and on when you talk about you know desirable extras now if we're talking about cars individually the cars that have you know two fender tags because they have so many options those are really desirable because you know you get so much in one car and that's when you start when you start getting into all the fender tags and all the options on them for specific vehicles you know you can really dial it down as far as how rare that car is particularly you know what i mean you may have a car that there is no other car like it with those same options so technically that's a one of one so that would be a desirable car now how much does that add to the value it depends on the car <laughs> you know what i mean so there's really just it we could go down a rabbit hole talking about you know what's really desirable but you know if, if you asked me what was the most desirable i would say you know, any cars with three two-barrel carburetors on top of a 440 is a desirable car, and obviously Hemi car is desirable. Um, those are the top of my list. Um, convertibles, you know what I mean? Uh, Cuda convertibles, desirable. You know, um, any performance model of these cars is desirable. So um, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's just the engine and drivetrain. Like I said, man, you could really go down a rabbit hole with this, but you know, Hey, if you got a Hemi car, you know, that's very desirable. I guess it depends on the person too. So we're not going to go down this rabbit hole too much farther, but that's basically, you know, my thoughts on it, you know, it just depends on the car. That's, that's, that's it. <laughs> um, as far as the market for Mopars in Norway, not being big, that's good for you. You put in $25,000 into that car you know, with the total investment cost of 40000 you know, it's hard to find a decent roadrunner, you know, that's been even partially restored that is in good running and driving condition for 40000 in the States. So I can only imagine if you had to go to the United States to get one of these Mopars back to Europe, that's a cost in and of itself. You know, if you come over here and you spend $40,000 on a really nice roadrunner and you take it back to Norway, you're going to have some extra costs, you know, the importing costs, all that stuff. So... I think you're in the right ballpark. I think you're doing great. I think you should keep restoring this car as much as you want. You know what I mean? Don't don't throw a hundred thousand dollars at the car, but you know, forty thousand, fifty thousand, that's a pretty good investment, you know. And in twenty years, your kids will probably make some money on the car, to be honest, if they wanted to sell it. So I don't think you're doing anything wrong. In fact, I think you're doing the right thing. I think you got a good car. Because the Roadrunner is one of those, it's like a universal car that everybody loves, you know, because it's the Roadrunner. So I don't think you'll ever have a problem getting rid of it in Europe if that's what you wanted to do. Let's see. What else were you asking? You were asking my thoughts on the market for Mopars. And I'll just touch on that again a little bit here. And I think the market is still strong. I don't see it going anywhere. I see project car prices still continuing to rise, even with 
lower end models like the A bodies, they're still coming up in price. So, you know, are there deals to still be had out there? Yes, absolutely. But they're few and far between, it seems. I, you know, I look at thousands of these cars and, you know, only a handful of them are really screaming deals. And when they're that good of a deal, they're gone. So the market is still strong, in my opinion. Now, from what I understand, all these big auctions, you know, your Meekum and Barrett-Jackson and, you know, these high dollar auctions, from what I understand, people are telling me that the prices are starting to come down on these really desirable Mopars that we were talking about earlier. So, you know, the project car market, I don't see slowing down anytime soon. But apparently the higher end, more desirable collector Mopars are coming down in price. So that's what I've heard. I haven't experienced it because my wallet is not that fat. <laughs> my pockets are not that deep yet. So I try to stay out of that world and stick to what I know, which is pretty much project cars or driver quality cars. So yeah, man, my opinion, keep doing what you're doing. Keep the car and, you know, don't invest too much, but, you know, build the car to have fun. You know, when you're talking about these cars, you really should never, unless you're a flipper, Unless your business is making money on cars, you should really never consider the money as far as, you know, how much is this going to be worth in the end? The most important thing is, are you going to enjoy it when you can drive it? If you can, if that car gives you a smile every time you look at it, if that car makes you smile every time you get in the driver's seat, you put that right foot into the ground and, you know, burn some rubber. Does it make you smile? That's all that matters, you know? So that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. And yes, I will add one more thing, and that's that any documentation you get with your car, like build sheets, even fender tags. Some people buy these cars with no fender tags, which, you know, is kind of a pain. But, you know, if you got a fender tag, you got build sheets, any documentation you can have for that particular car is a good thing. You know, if I was going to buy a Mopar, and I'm looking at two of the same cars and one of them has documentation and the other doesn't, but one of them is $10,000 more, you know, in the long run, maybe that 10,000 is going to be worth it. <laughs> you know, when you have a fully documented car versus one that has nothing. So that's my opinion once again, and I'm sticking to it. Thanks, Andre, for sending in your story. Our next listener story comes to us from Chris London, AKA Big Red. Here is Big Red's story. Hey Chris, my name's Big Red, and I love the show. I especially enjoy listener stories. So I'd figure I'd give you my story. Let me give you a little background about myself. I'm a millennial. I grew up in the 90s and the mid-2000s. Bread, Mopar, or no car. So early on, just like Johnny Mopar has the circle of cars he can't get rid of, I started started developing a list, list of cars that I really, really wanted. And, of course, on top of the list has to be something that's unobtainable to the normal person. I love the wing cars, the Daytonas, the Skittle Color Superbirds. But this is the story about my encounter with my number two dream car. So when I was in high school, my first car was a 91 Chevy Caprice station wagon. V8, torque thrust two wheels, loud Flowmaster dual exhaust, perfect car for a high school student. But 
Obviously, it wasn't a Mopar. Well, one day, I'm out cruising around, and I had to stop at Lowe's for, I don't know what, cans of paint or something. Anyway, I pull in, and they're sitting in the parking lot, front row, as a brand new 2006 Dodge Magnum SRT8. And man, that thing looked gorgeous. And of course, since I had a station wagon, I had to park right next to him. So I went in, got my stuff, came back out. And as I was coming back out, I see it leaving the parking lot. And I'm like, oh, I got to go catch up to that. So I hopped in my Caprice as fast as I could raced out of the parking lot and I caught up to it at a red light and of course being a 16 year old kid I was I gave it a little revved it up a little bit for him and then as the light went green I punched it and that car flat embarrassed me and from that day on I've been hooked now that I'm a little older and have a little bit more money in my bank account. I started searching over and all across the country for that black Magnum SRT8. And I'm happy to say 2016, I got the chance to buy one. Came out of California, shipped all the way to Ohio, a 21,000 mile, never seen snow, two owner car. And that's currently my hot rod today. I know it wasn't really a long story, but I'm sure I got a few more I can send you. Appreciate you doing the podcast. I look forward to listening to it. Thanks again, your friend, Big Red. What's up, Big Red? Thanks for sending in your story, buddy. Johnny Mopar is definitely a character, isn't he? Um, not all of us can have circles as big as Johnny, you know, with all of our Mopars in them. But, you know, I think every Mopar enthusiast definitely has a list of their most desirable Mopars. And mine is definitely like yours. I have to have a wing car someday. You know, if I die and I have not owned a wing car, I don't think I've fulfilled my mission as a Mopar enthusiast, but that's just my opinion. I think that everybody that's a Mopar enthusiast that has their number one dream car, I think that you should not stop until you get that car. So yeah, I think we share that. The wing car would definitely be my number one. Uh, number two, definitely close number two would be an A12. And then the list goes on. My list is ridiculously long, but that's definitely my top two. I think it's awesome that you love your car so much and that you had to go get one because of the situation that happened to you in high school. That's awesome, buddy. You know, I love hearing those old street racing stories, you know, even if it's just a, you know, a quick romp from a light, <laughs> you know, I think that's awesome that that moment had such an impact on you. You're like, I need one of those cars. That's awesome. And welcome to the world of Mopars. Thanks, Big Red, for sending in your story. You said you have more stories and... I'm going to have more podcasts. So you know what that means? That means you need to send those stories to me so I can get them played right here on Listener Stories. Thanks for sharing your story. That was Listener Stories. If you want to hear your story played on the show or you want to hear your story told on the show by yours truly, you can email me at chris at talkingmopars.com or you can send me a voice message 
by going to my voicemail box at 209-28-MOPAR, and I will play your message on the show. That was Listener Stories. In 1969, the first of Chrysler's e-body platforms started to roll off the assembly line. The first Challenger to roll off the line has been touted as the most highly optioned one to ever be built. Its VIN number's first five digits were JS27R, and those of you familiar with muscle-era Mopar VIN numbers will immediately understand why this car was so special. It was not only an RT, as designated by the S in the VIN, but it was a convertible as well, designated by the 7 in the VIN. What really made this car special was that it was an R code, which meant that this Challenger RT convertible had a 426 Hemi. Someday we'll make some time on the show to break down Mopar VIN numbers, as Sandre suggested earlier, but that was just a quick breakdown of this particular car. You know, this car was built to the hilt. It was triple black, and to drive this car, you'd have to know how to row through gears because it was a four-speed. And it was also the first Shaker Hood-equipped production car, too. So, I mean, the list of firsts for this car is long. You know, other options were the Dana 410 rear and power windows. This car was an awesome machine. Unfortunately, this car never saw a showroom floor from where it would have been sold because... Chrysler decided to pull it from the assembly line and send it off to become a concept show car. The car was sent over to Dearborn, Michigan, where Syntex Incorporated would transform it into what would be known as the 1969 Dodge Yellow Jacket show car. Syntex converted the car to a two-seater with a target top. It had side pipes, an electric rear spoiler and back window, mag wheels, and some other mild modifications like a custom grille and taillights. The car was also painted yellow because... You know, of course it was. It was the yellow jacket. The car was created as a way to test what would have been Ma Mopar's answer to the Corvette, but as this story goes, that never happened. Rumor has it that more attention was given to the pretty young lady posing with the car than the car itself. Go figure. You know, I wish I could see this girl. (laughs) You know what I mean? I wish I could see this woman that was standing next to this yellow jacket, ridiculous two-seater Challenger hybrid, so I can see you know, how hot she was. She must have been hot if people weren't even looking at the car. You know what I mean? But moving on, only weeks later after the show, the paint job started failing on this car. And because it was so underwhelming, you know, as a show car, you know, the impact was so little on this car, the yellow jacket would be sent again to Syntex to be customized even further. And it was actually reborn as the Diamante, which meant diamond in Spanish. And In my opinion, the Diamante is still a better name than La Mancha would have been. And yes, that was in fact a callback to episode one of this podcast. Hopefully some of you will remember that reference, but if you don't, go back and replay episode one to learn what the La Mancha was, or rather what it almost was. Let's just be thankful that that name didn't stick. Getting back to the Diamante, it debuted at the 1971 Detroit Auto Show and was considered in the August 2012 issue of Mopar Action Magazine as the most valuable Mopar on the planet. The Diamante is a short story for another installment of High Performance Heritage, but what I can tell you is that it was retired from the show circuit with only 600 miles on the odometer and eventually made it to the Steve Giuliano collection. Rest in peace, Steve. So that's the short story of the short-lived 1969 Dodge Yellow Jacket show car, and that was High Performance Heritage. There you have it, my friends. Another episode of Talking Mopar's High Performance Heritage is in the books. For more information about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to the show, 
please visit TalkingMopars.com. And don't forget that you can send me your Mopar stories, questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, and everything else on your Mopar-addicted mind to Chris at TalkingMopars.com. Or leave me a voice message on my voicemail box at 209-28-MOPAR to hear yourself on the show. Special thanks to my friends over at HemiPages.com and DIYHemi.com. Before we go, I'd like to tell you about the two best ways to help support Talking Mopars. The first way is by visiting TalkingMopars.com and checking out the Talking Mopars merch shop. There you're going to find all the current Talking Mopars merch like t-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, stickers, and more. By ordering stuff from the merch shop, you not only get some cool stuff, but you also help me to keep the wheels turning and the engine running on this podcast each and every week. The other way to help me in this Mopar mission is to become a supporter of the Mopar Hunter Facebook page by subscribing to bonus content. All you have to do is go to the Mopar Hunter Facebook page and click on the blue Become a Supporter button, and for only $4.99 a month, you will get exclusive access to bonus monthly video and podcast content, including exclusive live streams, a discount code for the merch shop, special giveaways, and access to my new Facebook group for fans of the show, the Mopar Hunters Association, where I will be posting all the cars, parts, and Mopar collectibles that you won't see on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page, in addition to talking to you, my loyal supporters. The new subscriber-only content officially launches on the first of the year, but by joining early, you will be entered into a special giveaway to be announced when it officially launches. Thank you for helping me with the No Mopar Left Behind movement. I hope to see you all there. That's it, my friends. Until we talk again, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopar's High Performance Heritage. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopar's, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.